podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. For everything I am, for everything I am not, I love me at my best and at my worst. I love me. Smiling, frowning, laughing, playing, screaming, crying, pounding. I am always grace, no matter what face I wear. You are my reflection. And I am yours. I love me for the sake of loving, for the honor and appreciation. I feel and experience fully embracing all of me. For in receiving all I am in every precious moment, nothing gets wasted. All of me remains whole and perfect, held in the universal heart where the love, which is always embracing me, the love, which is everywhere and endless, allows space for my grace to grow and know itself fully once again. I am so grateful. I am extended the gift of my friendship so I can dance into the beauty I truly am. Poem by Morjean Jordan. In this episode, Valerie Tellis interviews Morjean Jordan on unconditional love as a road to wellness and thoughts in between. Morjean celebrates love's magic in her incredible love of nature, life, all that is, source, God through her writing, photography, animal and nature communication, mentoring, and more. Morjean is writing books, The first one, Exaltations of Love, sharing her many experiences of divine, unconditional love and how it inspires a different perspective of life and everything and everyone around us. This one thing has been the main focus of Morjean's life since childhood and has changed her life more than anything else. Communicating professionally with animals the past 20 plus years also served to increase her passion as animals are incredible role models for unconditional love. Here is the interview with Morjean Jordan. 
In your own words, who is Morgan Jordan? Well, in my own words, I, I preface it by saying this is my own truth. I don't um, like to say that I'm advocating any certain truth. I'm just my own person living my own unique way of life. And I see myself as an extension of source, God, and energy, creation. There's some universal force that I see inhabits every form of life that beats our heart, that keeps us breathing, that allows humans to talk and communicate and every apple tree to grow uniquely. So I am an extension of that energy, whatever we want to call it. And um, I'm living in a human form and I chose the name Morjean, but I am part of everything, um, that part of that oneness. Wonderful. Thank you. Before we begin talking about unconditional love and the divine God, please tell me, what is love to you? Um, love to me is the most powerful force in the universe. It's, for me, the foundation from which everything originated. And love to me is unconditional. So if I love you unconditionally, like I love my, you know, my partner, um, there's nothing you can do that's going to to get me to stop loving you. You you can hate, you can kill someone, you can do horrible things, but I'll still love you because to me, love is what heals. If you're uncomfortable, if you're sick, if you're angry, if you are so cut off from who you really are that you are in a lot of pain or rage or anger, what you need is love. You don't need my hatred, my judgment. And my hatred, judgment, anger all cuts off my bodily functions. If, if I'm really at rage at you or hate you, then my breathing is more shallow. My heart's it's harder for my heart to breathe, beat. And all my functions are closed down. So I don't want to go there. So I love without conditions because I think it's that's what true love is about. Most people, I would say that could say 51%, but a lot of people love with conditions. So they love you as long as you meet these conditions. You do this and this and this, but if you hurt me or if you hurt somebody else or if you do something or rob a bank or something, I can't love you anymore. So for me, love, real love is without conditions. I think that's the way source or God or nature loves me. My animals love me without conditions. Right. Um, would you say that God is connected to love, the love you speak of? Yeah, I, I I use that term loosely because um, it's a term people know, but I don't associate God with the God that um, lived in my family when I was a child and you went to church. So I also use the word source or great mystery or the universe, you know, terms that anybody uses to mean that energy behind all things. And I think that love, like when I get a cut and my body heals itself, I don't have to think about it. Just knows how to heal itself, or I get a burn or a broken bone. And to me, that's love. Love is doing that. When you feel really bad and you go take a walk in nature, everybody tells you, many people say, go take a walk. You need a walk. Go take a walk. And nature is unconditional love. It's bathing you in unconditional love. That's why it clears your mind. That's why you feel better. That's why a lot of people, they go on vacation, they go to nature because it's so soothing. Right. So true. Why do you think so many people love conditionally? I think it's just uh, their upbringing. I think that in the world that we live in, I know that 
you know, many of my friends and me when I grew up as a child, my my parents, um, you know, liked everybody, no matter your nationality. But, you know, I went to church and when I was young, we had a fire and brimstone minister. And then when I got in about teenage years, we got a wonderful young minister who was the first white person on the Black Congress in L.A. after the L.A. riots that were taught, you know, these are the good people. These are the bad people. This is safe to do. This isn't safe to do. So you're sort of taught that way. And and um, I was never taught growing up by my parents or by my religion or my school to love myself. In fact, even today when my friends, you know, I have conversations, deep conversations, and I talk about loving myself unconditionally, that I have to love myself first before I can really love somebody else. People say it's a, you know, some people say it's a sin to love yourself. And I, to me, in my life, I don't see how... I can really love you, Valeria, if I don't love myself first, because then I don't understand what it is. Like, how can I teach Spanish if I don't understand Spanish and don't know how to speak it? Right. True. So true. When did you find out that you were capable of loving unconditionally? Was there a moment or a situation, specific situation? Not, not that I can remember. I just... I know when I look back, I mean, my friends, when I finally figured out my purpose in life, which is to role model unconditional love, you know, and be a source of that in the world. I grew, When I grew up, I was always wanting everybody to get along. I didn't want people to fight and argue. Now, only two years ago, I, I watched a uh, documentary called Sensitive, The Untold Story. And um, I sat there and cried and cried because things I've been trying to change for, you know, 68, I'm now 70, but 68 years of my life, I couldn't change. I'm a highly sensitive person. It's in my genes. And it's also in the same percentage. It's 15 to 20% of humans and animals and insects and unrelated studies. So I don't know if that had a, had something to do with it too, but, you know, I, I went to the bully in our neighborhood who was just like in the movies. He weighed, I don't know, he was a big, heavy guy, about twice my size and everything, and knocked on his door, scared to death because I wanted to talk to him and get him to stop fighting other people. I didn't like people to fight, and I wanted everybody to get along. So that was in me from my childhood. And then when I left, you know, church per se, because I didn't understand how you could bless soldiers to go out and fight and kill other people. It didn't make sense to me. But Corinthians 13 in, in the Bible, which says, you know, you could have everything in the world and be a, the most knowledgeable person, have all the riches or give everything away. and You don't have love, you're nothing. I mean, it really, you know, said it to me right there that that whole passage speaks about unconditional love and that it is the most powerful thing in the world. And so I always kept that with me. And, I, and I've seen that in many other texts, that love is the force that's healing, that, that you know makes plants grow in the middle of pollution and heals things we thought were not healable, you know, instantaneous healings and all sorts of things like that. I think that love to me, is behind that. Love's behind nature. You know, it's growing and growing no matter how much we've devastated it and hurt it and harmed it, that it loves us without condition. So that the the weather, as I understand it, but the beings that I've read and everything is something we co-create with our minds and stuff. It's not nature being angry at us, you know. Mm, right. It sounds like almost like a pursuit or a a wish, a desire to see the world a better place or people, better people. 
that we try to, uh, that we talk about, that we um, want to feel better about the world and people. So we believe and we pursue unconditional love. Would you say that um, by trying to change the world and people, isn't it like uh, the same as not accepting things that they are, life as, as it is? Yeah, because if I, being unconditionally loving, I don't, my aim is not to change anybody. I accept everybody. I celebrate our differences because I've been there. I, I, you know, for years thought I was unconditionally loving, but I meditate every day. And then in meditation, I'd hear about how I was judging myself or how I was judging somebody else. Because if you have an experience with somebody, like especially a family member, you know, or a friend, and you, you know, you think you know who they are. And every time they call and you interact with them, you have this picture painted in your mind of who they are. Now, I don't believe that God's source, all that is, all that they see you through the eyes of unconditional love is divinely perfect as everything you want to be at your highest level. And so, you know, I try to see everybody at that level when I interact with them, you know, that I am, you know, I expect their highest self to come out without an attachment to outcome of whether it comes out or not. But every moment is new to be when somebody interacts with me. I don't, I try not to see them as I saw them yesterday or how I've always known them because I think that we all change. We're all changing every day. I could have a, an incredible epiphany and not be the same person I was tomorrow when you call me. And so uh, you know, I even learned that in my animal communication class. You know, one of the first things the teacher taught us is that you need to see an animal as a blank slate, like you know nothing about them. Because if you assume they're angry or mad, then that's all you're going to get back from them. You're not going to get what's really going on. Mm. But sometimes they are. It's reality. People are uh, in a state of mind, a state of being that's out of balance. But it's just what it, what is. Um, for some reason, I connect unconditional love, a love to accepting everything as it is. No judgment, no assumptions, no expectations, no deluding myself, no illusions, which is really hard to do. But I believe also in practice. And I thought, because we talked earlier, I think, off record about change, changing people, and uh, the only thing we can do is to change ourselves. But I don't know. I think that sometimes we've, we've got to accept ourselves exactly how we are without trying to change in order to love ourselves unconditionally. Well, I, I agree that you, me, I have to accept myself. I totally agree with that. I'm just saying I'm not, I'm also accepting the other person, whether they're, and you ask me about what if the other person is angry or they don't agree with me or they're complaining about something. I'm in accepting, I'm, I'm looking for appreciating them. I use that word instead of gratitude. I appreciate where they are because I've probably been there. You know, I, I think that unconditional love makes me know that whatever it is, you know, I have been there for all one, you know, and if I've lived many lifetimes, you know, I've had that experience where I'm lost or I'm confused where I'm angry, where, you know, I've been suicidal several times in my life. So I can understand when somebody, you know, is tired of living this life. I mean, I get it. So I accept them. I don't judge them. I, I just embrace them with my love and I strive to create a field of unconditional love around me so that it's an unconscious thing that I'm embracing people with that energy. 
So sometimes that tends to make them relax more automatically where I'm not trying to change them, but I'm bracing them with a feeling of safety. For instance, if you meditate and animals come around or you look at an animal and you're meditating, you're just, you know, fully in the moment, animals feel very safe. They feel totally at ease in ways that they don't when your mind's full of stuff. So if I'm, you know, in the presence of somebody who's angry or upsetting or something and I am just totally at peace with them and and just loving them, they can usually feel that. They can usually experience that and they their whole um, demeanor might change. That's not my intention. I'm not trying to make them change, but it's just like, you know, I, I've heard, I've had several friends pay all the money to go have a session with the Dalai Lama when he comes to Portland. And they wait in this long line and they can ask one question. And everybody says they never ask their question. They get in there and sit on the chair and they start crying. They all tell me the same thing because they've never been in the presence of so much love in their life. And they've just melted and bathed in love and they usually never get their question out. Right. Right. That makes, that makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they can feel that, you know, people can just feel the love that emanates from that man. And then nobody has ever sat with them except maybe an animal and just loved them so fully. And sometimes they're just changed from that one five minute session. Yeah. So going back to the nature of being unconditional love, perhaps just uh, it can only be expressed by the presence the presence of it, right, in us. I don't think we can communicate with um, words or um, like we already talked about trying to change. It, because everything goes back to our own desire to change. We're programmed. We have been through a lot in this lifetime that have changed the way we see the world. And we, we have created too many beliefs. Now, um, we talked about this off bracket too. Do you think it's possible to live without belief, with beliefs? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I, I don't think so. I think that at least me, you know, in, in the past few months, I've, I've discovered in my meditation, all sorts of beliefs that were unconscious to me that I, that I had, you know, that were running in the background that I wasn't even aware of that I would certainly not claim because I tell people not to have them. You know? <laughs> right. You know what I meditation, you know, when God or all it is goes, uh, you know, yesterday when you were doing this, it said, what belief was going on? I go, shit. (laughs) So, so, you know, I think that we're, we're all evolving and that's why I'm so compassionate of everybody in the world, you know, and, and that we're all going through this process, but I think we're programmed. I mean, you asked me like, why do you think, you know, I think that in some ways, you know, religion, other things that are, um, in our lives sometimes condition us. And it all depends, you know, what culture we're raised in. You know, what even in the United States, if you're born in the north, south, east, and west, there's totally different ways of looking at life, you know. And and um, I think that this hard time we're going through right now started, I mean, I read a book by John Taylor Gatto, who was a one, one Teacher of the Year Award for New York twice. And then he was fired. And um, he wrote uh, some books. The first one I read was The Underground History of American Education. 
an intimate investigation into the prison of our modern schooling. And he pointed out something very important, which I didn't realize, but made total sense to me. When the Industrial Revolution came around, all of a sudden, all these people of all these companies realized, you know, here we got mass producing cars and we can mass produce furniture and clothes and everything and because we still do it today. So we need people who are non-thinkers, people who will come to work every single day and do the same thing day in and day out, who will never question authority, who work for low wages. So overnight around the world, the school systems changed. And now we have rows. You sit in rows. You face forward with your hands on your desk. You ask the teacher for permission for anything. Now, I'm 70 years old. When I was 17 years old and I had to raise my hand in class because I had two tampons in and a pad and it was leaking down my leg and I had to tell the teacher that I needed to go to the bathroom, I was pissed off, Valeria. I'm seven years old. I should not have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. And I, when I studied eye health, I found that what eye health really changed when they changed these school systems because you're forced, instead of looking around the room and looking all over and up and down, you're forced to face to head and stare at the chalkboard, which is not good for your eyes. But anyway, when, when they started creating these people, just think about it. Common sense would tell you that going down in a coal mine is not good for your health. Common sense would tell you working in a factory where all these noises are or these poisonous things coming out of these chemical vats that my, my husband used to work in places like that is not good for you. Or working in a factory sewing clothes where there's five stories of people inside the building and only one door to get out so the it burns down and everybody, but you, your common sense would tell you not to do that. But when the schools changed, People lost this. They were taught not to trust their intuition. Do not trust your intuition. Trust what we say. And then after several years, they found out, as he said in this book, that maybe they could market to people because they trust the authority figure. So then they started these marketing campaigns with the authority kind of figure who was selling you products. So that whole change around the world changed not only, you know, the religious thing that took away our our gut feeling, you know, when you thought something was that you shouldn't do something, it, it removed that. So I think that's kids are getting sick and tired of that in schools today and they don't want to, they don't want to, you know, I think the autism and stuff, they don't want people to tell them what to do and not to use their creativity and not to follow their own heart. So, you know, it was a very insightful thing when I read that book because when he started to teach and let kids and be inspired by what passion what what they're passionate about was when he was fired after he got two awards for being teacher of the year. And so then he began investigating, why won't they let me do this stuff? And so it was a very educational thing for me. It made sense to me why my parents went to school for me because I lived outside the box, you know, and we, we, had, we had to go to school for our kids in, in high school for both our kids and ended up in the principal's office. You know, like my son got was a A A plus, you know, A minus B plus student, and he got a D in his report card in physical education. And he always showed up. He got A's on all his tests, but the teacher was only uh, grading you on physical acuity, how many baskets you could make in a row, how many perfect times you could tip the volleyball over the net. You know, so there's all sorts of things that we don't know that really affect us on an unconscious level. If you're in that class and you don't have parents who are coming to school for you, you think that you're stupid or bad because you can't do those things. And it just affects your whole 
persona. So I am so empathetic for people. So I think unconditional love is just, you know, I was born to to live that way because I've had so many experiences with myself and with my children and with friends that I can see where people develop their attitudes, their judgments, their fears, their, you know, in, in ways that they don't know how they were conditioned or brainwashed or to think certain ways because people don't trust their intuition. And it, to me, it's a God-given thing. It's my thing that tells me, you know, I shouldn't do that. I mean... <laughs> I had a horrible fall last year and I was holding all this stuff to go to the kitchen, you know, holding some jars to put in the refrigerator. And I had gotten this little stool out. And I heard this voice say, put the stool away. And I said, I will just a minute, but I need to put this stuff in the refrigerator first and took one step and fell over the stool and slammed onto a tile floor. injured myself for a year. But there was that voice telling me to move the stool. Yeah, so in a way, we know right, exactly what to do, but for some reason we don't. But you just mentioned the large scale of um, wanting to control minds, control people, change and manipulate. So there's, I guess there's a lot of uh, money to be made, advantages, but we see that within ourselves too. This uh, is the same thing. I don't see any difference like you or me or anyone trying to change anybody else around us instead of uh, letting them be themselves. Even our own, I'm not a mother, you're a mother. So I, I can imagine how hard it is just not, not try to change your own children and control them. <laughs> I know, it just, it was, it was the, our kids used to tell their friends, you know, our we couldn't do anything wrong. It's just my kids wanted to be rock stars, you know, they went through that phase, you know, I can't remember whether it was Kiss, whoever was popular then. We took him to the music store and showed him the guitars and how much they cost and how much tickets cost to England and just like, okay, you know, here, this is what it's going to cost. Here's what you have to do. We didn't, you know. They, they they would lose interest once they, we just we didn't say no to them. My my daughter like went to this phase of wearing all these black and white clothes and my mother would send checks for Christmas and she'd buy these clothes and then, you know, two years later she's like, I can't believe you let me wear these things. <laughs> I said, Well you wanted them. Well, I hate them now. And you're just like but I you know, I, I we we didn't try to form them into who we thought they should be. Right, great. That's beautiful and really hard to do. Like, oh, it's it's drastically hard. I mean, our our kids were so loving and everything. I mean, they taught them to love animals. In Iowa, they each had a milking goat. They wanted a milking goat. They had to milk it twice a day. And Iowa winters and clean it out and everything. But you know, you move, we move out here and life's different. And 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 you just like that. We came home one day and our daughter had bleached her hair all the way down the middle. Oh my gosh. Now we had never, ever, that, that was the wildest thing she had ever done. <laughs> just like, but I just, I was taken aback and, and, and I said, why didn't you tell me you were going to do this? I didn't care that she did it, but I, I was just so shocked, but I didn't make her wrong. I didn't, you know, tell her she should do it and don't do it again. Because, you know, if, if you make your kids dress the way you want them to dress. And, you know, somebody, you know, I had friends and they said, how can you let your daughter go to school that way? I said, if I forced her to dress in the clothes I wanted her to dress in, she would feel uncomfortable all day long. I said, is your daughter on the honors roll? And they said, no. I said, well, my daughter is. And I said, so I let her dress the way she wants to dress because she feels good that way. Yeah. I like that a lot. I hated when I, 
my my mother made me wear those black and white shoes, saddle shoes, whatever they were called. I hated them. I wanted to take them off and be barefoot at school. <laughs> right. That doesn't help. We're with self, self love, <laughs> loving ourselves, wearing that stuff. No, it doesn't. When you're, when you, you think the whole world is judging you the way you look, you know. Hmm. You speak about intuition and how we have lost this ability to know who we are and what we really want out of life, our purpose in life, because we're not listening to our hearts, our intuition. So you might connect intuition to self-knowledge because that's it's hard to know, like what are our beliefs, what, what is really our intuition, we, unless you are doing the work of self-discovery and self-knowledge. So what is to know oneself, Morjean? Um, for me to know myself is to know who I really am, who I authentically am. Like I told you um, only two years ago, um, I watched that documentary because I grew up and people frequently told me, you don't have to be so sensitive. You don't have to cry about it. Lights don't bother anybody else. What's your problem? You know, so for all these different kinds of things, I'm sensitive to lights. I can't, I've never attended a loud a con, you know, concert or anything. Um, I avoided malls with the plague when my mother would take me with my sister to get clothes. I'd choose my clothes really quick and say, can I go sit in the car until you're done? And I didn't know why, but I was told, you know, my whole life that it was, you know, that I needed to get tougher. I can't stand any form of violence. I've had, haven't had TV for 25 years and I rarely watch movies. I wasn't being, I was trying to change myself for 68 years to be tougher, to be stronger, to not cry so easily, to, you know, I have all the sounds turned off on my computer except the error sound. And I have lights that flash in my house that I have covered up with black tape. Well, I wasn't being my authentic self. Now I am so, I see them as my powers. I see them as, you know, who I really am. And and I think that when you're really, at, you, you who you really are, you're more powerful. So my intuition comes into that is that, that gets back to love. When I'm loving somebody, when I, you know, I really love my children or I love a friend or I love in nature, my body is, I describe it as being open. I'm happy. I feel good. I'm energized doing what I love, like writing or outside taking photo, you know, photographs. I love when I am angry, when I'm judgmental, when I am in fear, when I'm in rage, my body physically changes. My muscles get tight. It's harder for me to breathe. It's harder for my blood to pump. So my whole body, every function in my body starts closing down. It's, and, and we describe when you're open as ease, ease and relaxed. When you are tense and tight like that, that's where the word disease comes from, dis Ease, the opposite of ease. You're all tensed up. So if you have an argument with somebody for 10 minutes, you usually feel really fatigued afterwards. You have to sit down and rest. And actually, a 10 or 15 minute argument can take you a day to get your body back to the way it was. Now, if you carry that anger around all day, or like some people, they're angry politically nowadays and you carry it around for days or weeks or months, you can get a disease because it's harder for your body to function in that way. You are, you are holding your body tense. Like you, if you held your fist tense for an hour, you couldn't even hold it tense for an hour, but you're doing that to your body. So when you're at ease is when you make 
good decisions when you're thinking clearly. If it, it was a nice sunny day and, and you were out in the park and, and then something upset you and you were really angry about something, you're having a fight with somebody and I come up and I go, Valeria, here's a gift. You go, leave me alone, right? I mean, you don't want to, you know, and if you made it, somebody asked you to make an important decision right then, wouldn't be a good time to make a good decision. Right, it's true. But if it's a nice day and the sun's out and you're just having the best time with friends and I come and give you a present, you go, oh, thank you. And if I ask you about a decision, you're, you're going to be clear. You know, so I think that God, all that is, whatever it is, created our body to tell us when we're out of balance, when we're in balance. So I know people who go and make a decision, you know, think about something and then second guess them themselves and they make the decision and it turns out to be the wrong decision or not a beneficial decision. There's no such thing as the wrong one, one that's not one they wish they had made. And they go, gosh, you know, I had that gut feeling that I shouldn't have done that. People say that. I have that gut feeling or you have that heart feeling. There, there's that guidance inside you that feels good, that's totally at peace. When you're totally at peace, that's when you make a decision. You think about making the decision. If you stay totally at peace, then you're usually going in the right way. It's, it's all, you know, I learned how to use a dowsing tool, dowsing rods. I learned how to use a pendulum. I learned how to do muscle testing, where in reality now my body is a dowsing tool. My body is, my body just tells me. I know I can pick a book up off a shelf and say, is this beneficial to me or not? Do I just need to read two pages or do I need to buy the whole book? My body tells me because it's it's my God-given system, but it didn't happen overnight. You know, I had to learn how to do all those other things. And then I eventually began to feel it in my body or hear the answer. And I still meditate because I, you know, there's those hidden things. I don't, you know, it's still hidden from me that, you know, I journal afterwards. I go, oh, I'm still doing that. Yes. Um, hmm. I love the way you talk about um, self-knowledge connected to listening to the body. Just pay attention. Right, because the body won't lie. It, it really doesn't lie. Some people, they say like to flow, just flow with life. You know, like uh, we have to stop with the, the concepts of methods, like meditation, for example, it's really a good method and I have used, sometimes I used to, but very rarely now. I just let not just my body, but also the, uh, the circumstances, the people I meet and everything that's happening to tell me what life is about. Like the moment, being in the moment really might be what it is. If you are in the moment, I don't think we need methods anymore, then we are done with them because the moment life itself is happening now becomes your method to understand life. Yeah, well, I, I try to live in the moment all the time. I mean, I do my, but I, I, you know, we all, somebody, you know, some people who have a really fast mind, not meditation might not work. There's a lot of ways to, you know, slow down your thinking because there's usually not any time when we're quiet except when we're sleeping. So, and, and I'm a highly sensitive person, so I like meditation. But I, you know, in meditation, I was guided to set my timer for every 30 minutes. Mm, I like that, right? <laughs> and I did it for like three or four weeks. And every time the timer went off, all I was to do was go, am I in the moment? That was all I was supposed to do. Ask, am I in the moment or not? And so it got me to be more and more in the moment, you know, because I'd recognize when I wasn't, when I wasn't, you know, with what I was doing. I wasn't present. So the, to me, the only moment we can live 
and be alive is the present moment. If we're thinking about yesterday or tomorrow or somebody we're angry about or something we have to do when we're home, we're missing the present moment because that's the only place you can be alive. When you're in your mind, I mean, that's where animals live, in the present moment. I teach, you know, I used to teach animal communication classes. And I take people through this exercise. I have them close their eyes and focus on their breathing, then focus on their clothes, focus on their hair, focus on the chair, what their feet felt like, whether they had shoes on or not, you know, and on and on and on. And, you know, engage all their senses until I, you know, got everything I could think of. And then I said to multiply that by a hundred times because that's what the animals are all the time. You know, they are 5,000 times more present than we are. And that's that's where they live. So you don't miss anything because like you said, every there is no, you know, every day is a precious moment because it's never going to be lived again. You know, the sunset you see is never going to be the other sunset, the person that you're with. Like, I'll tell you a very funny, funny story. The first time I started hearing spirit, and I used to go to junkyards with my partner because we'd have to pull parts out of cars, you know, to, to fix our car because he can fix anything. So you can imagine, you get sort of dirty there and you go in the bathroom and he went in the bathroom first. And this bathroom is like, you know, a guy's bathroom. <laughs> it's, a, you know, unisex, but, you know, there's grease on the sink. You want to hover on the toilet just to give you the idea. You know, it, people work on cars and come and wash their hands in there. So he goes out to the car and I'm washing my hands and I have all of a sudden God talks to me, like answers this question I've had for like two months. I, I just hear this voice as clear as a bell and tears are running down me, you know, and so I, I get all clean and I get in our old Willie's Jeep, you know, and we start driving home and I haven't said anything. I'm just sitting there. Now, my, my partner's very intuitive and he just looked at me because, so what happened in that bathroom? <laughs> You just knew something happened. I said, well, this voice talked to me. But I mean, you never know when that's going to happen. You know, we, it's, you know, it's going to happen in church or I'm just like, but I clearly remember the first time I heard that voice so clearly. And um, you just, when you're open, when you're ready to hear that inner guidance, like I used to, originally I would just journal and journal and journal sometimes with my other hand. Then I get messages, you know, and and for myself, many of the my poems that I write just are channeled things that are to myself, that are messages that, about what I'm learning, about how I'm growing and, and other viewpoints that I'm not aware of. And animals taught me a lot. Oh, my God, they're like so unconditionally loving. My partner's dog one time says, I can tell you what your problem is. I said, what, you're still doing this and this and this? I said, oh, I gave that up a long time ago. I don't, I don't you're right, you know, and like two weeks later, boom, and I walked into his dog who stepped at his feet and I go, you're right, Duke, I did it, I did it, thanks so much, you know. Yeah, Yeah, that's interesting. I don't have experience with uh, animals the way you do. I'm just wondering if I'm a lot more interested in people. I'm just wondering the difference, like, uh, in the experience of, um, of knowing oneself deeply if it's the same, like dealing with people or dealing with animals, understanding them, do you find it to be the same, the same kind of experience? No, well, animals, animals don't like that. Animals don't have deep thoughts about themselves. You know, they just, they know about you because they're watching you 24 hours a day. And because, you know, I learned to be a communicator, I can sometimes get 
you know, deeper messages. Um, but they are very present with life. They're very unconditioning. Like you can tell your dog you can take a walk every day and you don't, and they don't hold grudges. Like, why didn't you take me for a walk yesterday? I mean, they're so present. They're just you know, I have a friend who made these cards and, and nobody wanted to carry them in stores because he was so ahead of his time. The, the one for today says, nature is a consistent example of life without attachment to ideas. You know, it just doesn't, there, there's no attachment to anything. They're just unconditionally loving and they're present to whatever's happening. And if you don't take them for a walk, well, they go, well, maybe later today. Well, maybe tomorrow. They're very, they, but they are affected by their environment. So my teacher told us, which I never planned to be an animal communicator, not in your life. But I had two dogs that were fighting about once a week and, you know, biting each other's ear or whatever. And one was my daughter's dog who she had taken away to live with her. But when she moved back to Portland, he couldn't stand the walking on the street with cars because where we have, where we live, there's no sidewalks and he'd never experienced that. So he came back and we had a young dog. And of course, you know, the young dog, this is my house and the old dog, well, I've lived here for 10 years, you know. So a book fell in my hand to make the long story short. It said animal talk. I didn't know you could talk to animals. And then I went and took a class and I got the dogs to stop fighting, put all my stuff away in the closet and people started calling me because my teacher wasn't doing animal communication for a while. And, you know, I ended up, you know, taking more and more classes. You know, I didn't know that they were such unconditionally loving beans, but my teacher told us that most of the time we'd be coaching people and not coaching animals. And that turned out to be very true because if the animal lives in a stressful household, they're going to pick up the stress of their environment, just like if you have a stressful workplace or, you know, whatever it is. So a lot of times they pick up what's going on in their environment just naturally. So there are animals just like humans. Like I learned to be really peaceful and I can go in any chaotic environment. It doesn't bother anymore. So there are certain animals that just ignore what's going on, but there are ones that are more sensitive that are totally affected by people's arguments or hatred or something like that. And they can get sick and diseases or have behavior problems that are totally a result of what's going on in the home. So I have to I have to coach people without knowing they're being coached because they just can you talk my dog to stop biting or we're going to have to put him to sleep? No, I can't. You know. <laughs> wow, oh, I love that idea. So in a sense, because uh, we are talking about the ego mind, it's really hard to go through the mind, right? The mind separates everything. The duality, like you're saying, if you're training people through their pets, that it's easier that way. <laughs> No, it's not easy for me. I took, I didn't know I did. I took like six or seven coaching classes, you know, Ayurvedic, inspirational, spiritual, just like all these different kinds of, you know, shorter kind of coaching classes. But people call up and so I'd like, I would ask a lady, is anything going on in your life? No. Does anything happen? You know, anything, you know, major? No. And then finally, after 20 minutes, she says, oh yeah, my dad died last week. And of course she's experienced this grief in the Dogs like totally freaked out because suddenly this happy person is sad all day and crying. So the dog doesn't know if she's upset with her or what, you know, what's going on. And, you know, I have to sort of try to coach her. What do you think that you could tell the animal, you know, that tell your dog that, that your dad died and you're upset and it's okay that you cry, you know. So I have to coach the people in order to help the animal. I tell the animal, but, you know, once I'm off the phone, they're back into the, you know, the atmosphere of what's happening. And so I have to help the people 
people understand that they're affecting the animal without making it their fault. You wrote something else that I found to be very interesting, and I have a follow-up question. You said you are perfect and divine as you are in this moment. So how can someone believe in something like this when they are aware of the flaws, basically the flaws of their nature as humans and their negative responses to life's so challenges and etc. How is it possible to teach somebody or to guide them to understand that they are already perfect as they are? Okay, so they're they're wanting to know because I I mean I can't convince somebody who, you know, is brought up in the standard school, church, whatever that you know that uh, I'm. It's how I see them through the eyes of unconditional love. But if you're guiding someone, I mean, I have to teach them what, as I understand, unconditional love is. So if I love you without conditions. There are no conditions that you must meet. There's nothing you must do to have my love. That means you've never made a mistake. You've never done anything wrong. You're not bad. You're not evil. You've never failed at anything because none of those words make sense to me because I just see you as a spirit that's learning and growing. Like when a child learns how to walk, we don't go, get up, stupid. How many times is it going to take you to learn how to walk? We don't do that. It takes time for the child to learn how to walk. It takes time for the child to learn how to eat without spilling their food all over, how to drink, how to get dressed. We don't pick on them for those things because it's just natural that you're going to make mistakes growing up. When you learn how to write, when you how to read, that is true for your entire life. But you learn, you're indoctrinated like parents, you know, because they're so indoctrinated in the system, they figure if they can punish a child enough and instill enough fear, they'll be good. And I have known people who have gone through our prison system and our prison system compared to Europe and everything else is just like they try to make you feel as horrible and stupid and dumb and evil as possible, figuring that somehow that's going to make you a better citizen when you get out and they give you your clothes and no money until you don't get in trouble. So if a person is, you know, is punished, like, you know, like I was punished when I grew up or, you know, I remember on my other, she was a loving person. But one time she saw me, she found me taking a dime out of my dad's pocket that was hanging there. You know, I reached in his pocket and she told me she could never trust me again. Well, I'm 70 years old and I somehow remember that, that my mother could never trust me again because I was so young when that happened. So I think that, you know, telling the person and helping them understand the way I think that spirit or God or divinity sees us as precious, like that energy, that that being, that created everything and it just loves everything no matter its size the the little nematodes in the soil the things we can't see it loves everything because it knew that we're going to grow up and we're going to fail we're going to fall down and get up and fall down and go up we're going to do things that are dumb like me falling over that stool when i heard the voice you know say boom the stool honey i know what's going to happen next it doesn't make because making fun of us and judging us and punishing us doesn't teach us anything except how to be more afraid of making a mistake. There are no mistakes. You don't make mistakes. You just go, oh, 
I don't think I want to do that again. I think the next time we're going to do it this way. Like when you're learning how to walk, you go, okay, that didn't work. Let's try this. Oh, that didn't work. That's, you're learning how to put stuff in a spoon, you know, and you learn how you tilt the spoon and how, okay, everything fell over. Let's try this, you know. Our whole life is that way. We never stop learning. We never stop growing ever in my mind. And so that's what I try to show somebody to know that they're precious and divine and loved unconditionally. If if I'm teaching and they want to know why I'm so happy and peaceful, no matter what's going on, even politics now, you can't get me upset, you know, that I see everybody through that lens, through the lens of unconditional love. Right. Um, I'm just wondering how we can um, learn this earlier. Like I I learned when I was, what, 38, 37, I started to learn. Well, you'd, you'd have to teach the parents. You know, I think that we fail. We fail in this country. You know, I love indigenous cultures where the children around the campfire from the time they're babies listening to everybody talk about life. But, you know, my mother was a nice mother. She was, my mother was raised. She had three older brothers, the youngest of which was seven years older than her. And my father was raised by all women because his father died in the Spanish-American War when he was three. In my mother's house, they they didn't listen to music, no dancing, no card games, no movies, nothing. So when I was pregnant, my mother didn't tell me anything. She didn't tell me what to expect. She didn't tell me about colicking, nothing. I had no education except what I read, read in books. And I think that when we raised kids just not knowing anything. We, we haven't talked to anybody. We're afraid to ask people. We, Or we get this information from Dr. Spock like he's got, you know? I mean, it, it's just sad. And I think that it starts, you know, I would like to teach self-love to kids, you know, some of the books that I'm writing, you know, I went on a child, write child's book on how to love yourself. I mean, I had and in this one class, I still remember it. We we learned how to, and I can't remember, it's too many years ago, but we learned how to love ourselves. It was a, you know, how to love yourself class. A simple little, you know, one day workshop thing, you know. And this teacher, this lady was a teacher and she taught like kindergarten or first grade. And she, the kids, one of the kids said to her, you know, how come you weren't here, you know, Mondays? And she said, well, I was taking this class. Let me tell you about this class. So she just decided to teach her students what she'd learned in class. All of a sudden, in the next few months, her kids were exceeding their grade level. Everything, reading, writing, just went through the roof. Because she came back, we were meeting once a month. We were a group. She said, I can't believe it changed my students, you know. So I'd love to teach self-love from kindergarten, you know, because you're so more self-confident when you're loving yourself than you than if you're judging yourself you were afraid of failing you don't know if you're going to do it right what are your friends going to think about you when you let go of all that and you love yourself you see everybody else differently all of a sudden everybody around you looks differently because when somebody makes what you used to consider a mistake or says something angry you say oh i used to do that oh yeah i, I remember that I'm, I was that there too, you know? Somebody cuts me off on the freeway. I never get mad anymore. I go, I probably cut off people hundreds of times and I didn't even know it. I just didn't look well enough or they were in my blind spot. I mean, just stop being angry because it doesn't, it's not good for you health-wise and it's it, you're not a role model for what real love is like. And I really think that real love is without conditions because most people are going around, I love you if you do this and this and this, but if you look at another woman, I can't love you anymore. 
you don't take out the garbage every week, I'm not loving you anymore. You know, we, we put all these conditions in on our children and other people. Um, yeah, I, I wish it was um, that simple, just to teach children how to love unconditionally and self-love. It is. I mean, it's not that it's not that difficult. It's just that because of the system, we have to change our school system. We have to change our thinking. And just by saying that, just by saying it's difficult, you create that reality and you don't want to, to me, I'm just speaking for me. I'm not out here to change the world because it's broken and it needs fixing. I gave up that idea a long time ago, but I can inspire through my writings and sharing my stuff ideas. I can write books about how to love yourself that little kids might read that might inspire them to love themselves or might inspire people who are ready to look at themselves differently when they got up and read the mirror, you know, look in the mirror and see themselves differently. But if I go at it that the world is broken and it needs fixing, then I've, I'm totally not unconditionally loving. I'm not in the moment. I'm not being peace with who it is. You know, being at peace with what is, is like you were saying, is the cornerstone. You know, I had to do that with my weight. I didn't realize my, you know, I'm, I haven't been sick for years, but I've had a weight issue since I was told I was fat when I was 10 and put on diets and punished and all this other kind of stuff. And so I didn't realize that I had that image of myself since I was a child. You know, that in, you know, I married somebody who was skinny and I was bullied by my family. You know, if you really loved yourself, you'd lose weight. I've been on, I was on diets for 60 years until I gave up. But, uh, you know, and suicidal because I couldn't lose weight. But I, I was unconsciously thinking that I was a bad person because I couldn't lose weight. And it was an unconscious thought that I had. So I'm so empathetic that we get that, you know, I heard a, a an actor and I'm, I wish I could remember his name. But anyway, he's very famous and he was being interviewed and he's been in dozens and dozens and dozens of movies. And they said that, it, well, it must be really easy to, to learn your lines now. And, you know, when it, after all these years and he said, no, it's still very hard. And the guy said, why? And he said, well, when I was, you know, in my teens, it says my father said something to me that just stuck and I can never get it out of my mind. I said, what do you say? He said, well, never open your mouth and show people how stupid you really are. Now, there's something that you know what? I don't know what the situation was, but here's an actor who could not let go of that phrase his father told him, you know, when he was a teenager. And here he is, you know, 60 years old. So, you know, we all have that stuff. I'm so empathetic because we all have those little things that are holding us back. So I think that the only thing for me is like I can be a role model for it. And somebody might come to me and say, how come? How can you be at peace with the political system that's going on? How, I want to know how you do that. And so then I you know, explain to them where I'm coming from and help them if they want to. But I don't go around telling them that they shouldn't be angry or you shouldn't because I, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, that I, the, my, one of my favorite T-shirts that said, I refuse to shoot on myself or anyone else anymore. <laughs> Or another one that said, take my advice, I'm not using it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny one. <laughs> you know, so I just like, I think that I can be a role model. And, you know, it, it, one of my teachers said, never answer a question that hasn't been asked. 
And even in my Seth group, people, you know, go, oh, you know, because they're trying to, why can't I get my family doesn't want to read these books? I kept trying to enlighten them, you know, but they won't get it, you know. And I go, do you like the religious people who knock on your door and try to get convert you? No. Do you get? Do you like those people calling you on the phone trying to sell you things that you don't want to buy? No. I said, so why are you trying to sell your books to your family when they're not interested? Oh, you know, they, you know, we get really happy about learning something, but when somebody, when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. We've heard that. So I'm, I'm just here for people who, you know, say, how can you be peaceful? You know, because I have a lot of friends who I can see from my unconditional loving pace are hurting their health because of the political things going on in this country. They, they are enraged all the time. They're just, they live with this anger in their body and it just, and I'm not belittling them. I just, you know, have to wait until they, if they ask me, you know, how come you're not upset? You know, (laughs) I don't have TV. (laughs) I don't watch the news and I'm still alive. It's 70 years old, you know. Somehow I always know what somebody tells me. There's an earthquake. And, you know, when, when the fire was going last year and it was 30 minutes from my sister's house, you know, somebody told me about the fire. So I went on in line and I would Google the fires every day to see how close it got to my sister. But that's about as much as I care about the news. I ha- I, wa- I read the goodnewsnetwork.org, goodnewsnetwork.org. I, I Googled one day, Valeria, is there any good news in the world today? That's what I Googled. Is there any good news in the world today? Oh, and I just like, you can just sit there and cry yourself going to sleep at the wonderful things that are happening around the world that you never hear in the news. Yes. Now we'll make the news. Hundreds of stories. It's just like you feel good. You know, you never hear it in the news because they, you know, don't want to make you happy. Well, they have, they say an agenda, right? It's something that they are looking for, whatever that is. Yes. And, and But at the beginning, at least, I don't know if it's the same because I haven't had TV, but they used to, t- at the beginning, they tell you one, give you a, a juicy tidbit of a happy story that they'd save till the end of the news. So you can watch all the sad, horrible stuff and then they'll tell you this last little happy thing, you know. That's interesting you make this point because I was always curious to know why people get themselves into this habit of watching the news with all this negativity. I was just wondering why. Um, well, I, I I have never understood until recently. Um, a friend sent me the, these articles about our brain, and I don't think there is time, everything simultaneously, but we live in this, this particular three-dimension that has time so we can talk about time. So in our early development, let's say we're back at the prehistoric time or the early times in our lives, it was, we had to be on guard for, wild animals, for all sorts of stuff. It was very important for our survival to be aware of the dangerous things that could hurt us. You know, and, and it, it could be a fire, it could be a, it could be an animal, it could be another situation. It just like we had to be aware and on guard. That was our most important thing because there wasn't another technology that we have today. So we were aware of negative things. So we still have that habit in our brain until we change it that we think we have to know what's going on in the news in case we need to do something about it. Mm, right. Also, that's the fear mechanism yeah, of the survival. Yeah, it's the fear mechanism. I mean, I had somebody call me. I don't know if I told you. I don't think I told you. I had somebody call me. I live rurally, so people don't know, you know, no sidewalks up where I live by Mount St. Helens. 
they were trying to sell me a um a surveillance system for my house. <laughs> and, and I and I said, I don't need it. And the lady said, No. I said, I create my own reality, so nobody's ever gonna break into my house, okay? Period. He said, Oh, you know, I'm sure sign up telling your friends what a really weird person I was. <laughs> right. I can't imagine. Yeah, you know, Einstein said there was one question virtually no one asked themselves, but the answer to which defines how they experience their entire life. Do you believe you live in a friendly universe or not? So if you think it's a dog-eat-dog word and you have to take care of yourself and you're afraid of somebody robbing you and all this other kind of stuff, that's the world you're going to live in. If you believe that you are an aspect of the divine, that you're an extension of the divine created to love and have fun and enjoy, and that you always imagine the best in everybody that comes to you without an attachment to outcome, you're going to live in a different world. But it's interesting, Marjane, that... What I have been observing, like my own existence, is that there is also that aspect, you know, that level where you, uh, we call it spiritual. You know, you have this deep understanding about life. I don't know how much we can really bypass the body itself and everything that we've been through, like for millions of years. All the survival, the fear, for example. Like I, I can never get rid of fear. It's, I can sense the fear. I'm just not afraid. But it's still there. I know it's there. I'm aware it's there. And I see a lot of aspects of my life that's guided by the ancestors. It's very interesting. So I just watch everything fascinated with the the body, how much weight it has in our reality. It still um, makes us live in a certain way. Well, I think that's because we live, you know, without getting into esoterics, it's hard to get into esoterics and do we create our own reality and what, you know, what that all is. But when you live in the in the 3D world and you have a physical body, you tend to react to everything. You react to food, you react to people instead of responding from your inside out. So what I understood is, you know, when I connect, when I meditate every day and I connect with the divine with it. I feel that. I can feel that in my body, that connection, that my body just feels loved. If you, you know, and it took a while to get there. I didn't, that didn't happen overnight. But when I'm in that space, when I get in fear, if I just stop and connect with that love inside myself, I'm no longer afraid because that inner wisdom says that, you know, my, my guidance isn't guiding me that any anything's wrong. It's my habitual thinking. When I get angry at somebody or angry at something, I connect with that divine. I go, oh, that was just my habitual thinking. That's just my programming. Now I was programmed to react that way every time my mother says that. But really, you know, my mother has dementia and she doesn't even know what she's saying. You know, I, I've had to tell friends who took care of their parents, you know, I'd, I'd have to work with them and say, look, you know, your mother is in another world. You cannot take seriously what she says, you know, because they're feeling so angry and they hate their mother and they hate, you know, we have these arguments and, and it's just all useless. I said, just pretend your mother came from another planet and she doesn't understand you. And you just have to love her no matter what she says, because because they are, you go through this mental thing where your parent isn't there. They're not, they seem like they're conscious of you. They say all sorts of things they've never said before. And if you take as, you know, that's a good example. I mean, people say things like my, my, my partner one time, this guy yelled some horrible thing at him in the morning at work and another, he was talking to another guy and he said, how come you don't get mad? And Jerry says, because I don't think that he means it. 
He said, well, I think he meant it, you know, and later on the guy, that same guy came by and said, I'm sorry, you know, I lost my father last night and I'm just not my normal self. And Jerry says, it's okay. I mean, you just get to, you know, that it just becomes a, like you say, it's, it's inside, you know, when you can tell when something's wrong with somebody and they really don't mean what they say when they say something at you that way. They're upset about something else and they're taking their anger on you because you're a safe person to take an anger out. Not living as a person as much, right? Taking things personally all the time. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. You're, you're going inside because your intuition, your body knows your, your, to me, I'm only speaking for myself, but my God self, my source self is connected to everything and everyone in the entire universe. So it is better than any computer. So it knows already what's happening with you, even though you're not telling me. You know, so like, I'll give you an example of a dog. There was this dog, and I'm forgetting the name of the book right now. But anyway, this man had to, uh, J. Allen Boone. And anyway, um, this man had to take care of this dog because he was a valuable dog. He was a famous, famous dog. He was a German shepherd, and he was in movies and everything else. And his friends had to go on vacation for a month. But they couldn't leave the dog with a care. You know, they needed somebody who was going to watch him because somebody would try to steal him. So the man had to take him everywhere. So he was going to meet his friend for lunch and he explained that, you know, he had to bring the dog by. His friend said, fine, you know, he was head of this big company. So he got there about 20 minutes early and he's sitting in the office. And there's one that came out and go to the bathroom and came back and the dog's going when the guy goes by. And so his friend came out to get something from his desk and he says, I need to ask you a question. He says, yeah. He says, that guy with the black hair, are you doing some kind of business with him? And he says, yeah, why? He says, well, I don't know why, but this dog's really smart, and he didn't like that guy. Just thought I'd tell you. I don't know what it means, but he growled when he went by. It turned out that that guy was trying to swindle him out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm, wow, is that a true story? Now, yes, it's a true story. It's a true story. The guy, you know, told the whole story to him. So what I'm saying is when you're using all your senses, when you're present in the moment, using all your senses when you're talking to somebody, and your mind isn't going a million miles an hour, you haven't assumed to know what that person is thinking or what kind of person they are, who you think you know they are, then that intuition is working. You can feel that they're actually in pain or you can feel whatever's going on. You know, my partner and I go, okay, what's bothering you? Nothing. I go, honey, okay. You know, because you get you get to feel and sense what's really, you know, we are each God in my mind. And when we're using all our senses like that animal did, that animal could feel there was something wrong in that man that he was, you know, he didn't know. He probably couldn't tell me what he was doing, but his, his, that guy walking by when he's going to swindle this guy, he's not feeling normal and balanced. The dog goes, I don't feel safe around that guy. Get me out of here, man. You know, so he knew something was wrong. So when you are tuned in all your senses, like when I'm teaching that animal communication class, when you tune to all those senses, you know instinctively when you're in the present moment. You just know. You don't have to, you don't need somebody to tell you. You don't automatically, like Jerry, he didn't get mad at that guy. The guy said, oh, I think that he meant that. And he said, I don't think he meant it. I mean, intuitively, that's how he inspected because he had a teacher, you know, he said, how can you can come in and look at a hundred pieces and pick the one part out? He said, I got to inspect all the other pieces and there's nothing wrong with them, but you know the part that's wrong. He said, it drives me crazy. He says, I can feel it. 
you know, so you get, you learn to feel. So when you start to do something that doesn't feel good, you go, okay, it's not right. You know, this is not, you know, you have that sense. And I think we, it's been taught out of us. Like when they changed the schools and you were taught to follow authority, not trust your own inner wisdom, all this kind of stuff. And even when you go to the church, you're, you're taught to most churches to believe what they say. They are their, your connection to God. You are born in sin and you have to spend your life learning to be this perfect person. First, you know, they, 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 there's 30 years of Jesus. They don't know where he went or what he did, you know, but who cares, you know? But I mean, you just like, don't know. We're all different. You know, like, like you, you bring up the Bible. How many religions are based on the Bible that have totally different beliefs? They're only, they totally interpret the same books. I mean, it's the First Testament. Some of, I mean, today, the people who are still translating the Bible have all these updates about because they're learning more on how to translate that language. You know, we're sorry, but this didn't mean this. It means this. Oh, you know, there's all sorts of parts of the Bible that are fake. You know, this part in Matthew and Mark, so-and-so, a fake person wrote that. We should throw it away. One of those was uh, women should stay at home and be mothers. That was one of the fake parts of the Bible. But do they ever update it and take it out? No, but people believe that is the word of God. And I mean, I laughed. I, did, I, I laughed myself silly because this lady says, how come you're so happy? And I said, well, I read these books. I channel was channeled by this being named Seth. And I explained what channel was. She said, I don't think my church would let me read those books. And I looked at her and I said, do you know the Bible's a channeled book? I said, none of those people lived when Jesus was alive. They channeled God. And she says, Oh, give me the book. She's <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's funny. <laughs> but I mean, there's, there's, it's all, I just use that book because it's all interpreted in so many different ways. And so we all have, we got how many, 7 billion people. We all have these beliefs and they're like glasses and we're wearing them our entire life. When we, and that's how we see the world, through these beliefs. This is a good person. This is a bad person. I can't trust black people. I can't trust these people. No. Whatever it is, we, that's, that's the way we define our lives. And until we wake up to the fact, well, maybe this isn't true. My minister, who was like that first white person on the black council, he grew up in the South. Nobody ever said mean things about black people. They didn't dissuade them. But in where he lived, he never saw them teaching at school. They never saw, you know, they were just doing menial labor and, and housework and that kind of stuff. So when he, he just assumed that they couldn't learn, that they couldn't read, they couldn't write. That was an assumption he made, but it was unconscious. So he said he went to college and his first roommate was this black man. And he sat there on the bed and said, how did you get here? You people can't learn how to read. You know, he said it was just a wake up call to me. Well, in his mind, he's going through this. So he talks, he says, it was a whole education for me in 24 hours of something that I grew up assuming that had no valid, it wasn't valid, but I assumed it by the way I lived, you know, where I lived. There weren't any of these people that required an intelligence and a reading ability. They didn't hold any of those positions. So we can grow up with these assumptions, whether we get it from the Bible or our parents or somebody else that have no validity or no truth, and we're seeing the whole world through those filters. And we know we're unconscious that we do it. That's why it's hard because I have, you know, I'm sure there's certain things that I'm still unconscious about. I'm not perfect, but I journal and I meditate to try to uncover those things so that I can, you know, release one more thing that 
is not holding me back. <laughs> but I think love myself unconditionally so I don't, you know, do that. That like I wrote that one of my favorite things I wrote was I and the magic and the birds singing, you know. And it says I'm everything. I really admire absolutely love the way you bring things to basics. Just unconditional love. Love, it's common sense. Do you know Louise Hay? Yes, yes. So, you know, her exercise, I, when we first got her book, Jerry said that, that he thought that was the only affirmation in the entire book. I love and approve of myself. Because <laughs> we were looking up ailments and I'd, I'd read the affirmation. I said, that's the only affirmation in the whole book. I said, no, but I think it must be the one you're working on. But she had to, you know, do mirror work. She said it was the most powerful work. And let me tell you, when you look in that mirror and say, I love and approve of myself until you believe it, you know, it, it was very hard, you know, to, to say I love and approve myself, that I really love my, you know, until I felt it in my own body. You can say it all day, but doing it in the mirror until you believe it is like a whole different experience. It's very powerful. You know, it starts with each of us loving ourselves until we, you know, see, because like, I'll just give one last example for you. Like, I'm not upset about the political scene. Before the current person was elected as president, I was very familiar with narcissism. I had to help a friend because she was physically endangering herself and she asked for help. She had all these physical ailments because she hated this woman who was a good friend of hers and had the bank where she banked and she, you know, took all this money from her on her credit card and all this stuff. And she hated her every day. And I found out she was a narcissist. And I had to explain to my friend, I said, look, I said, they tell lies all the time and they believe their lies. There's nothing you can do to convince them otherwise. They are the most important person in their life. They have no empathy for other people. You know, I went through the list. I said, they just, this is who they are. I said, it's a mental illness. I said, some people, when they're young, I said, if they know they have these tendencies, they might get help. But I said, there's no drugs and there's nothing you can do. And you are physically hurting yourself every day, hurting her, hating her. So, you know, I turned her life around because she had to let go. So I knew that of the person who's president now, they are a severe case of a narcissist. They are. They have a mental illness. Donald has a mental illness. And people get... Well, my son says that that's the most demeaning way you can call it. And he said in the Senate, they refer to men as Mr. Smith and whatever. And when they address a woman in Senate, they address her by her first name. So he said, I call him Donald. Donald is a narcissist. And, you know, people make fun of him. They get enraged. They scream and yell. And it's not going to do them any good. It just makes them sick. It just makes some headaches, stomach aches. It, 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 they can't do their work well. They yell at their kids because they're short-tempered. And there's nothing you can do. The man does not have empathy. He tells lies all the time because he's a narcissist. He has a mental illness. If he was autistic, if he had a stutter, if he was in a wheelchair, would we be making fun of him every day? No. But he has a mental illness, and we elected somebody who has a mental illness, and makes the whole country angry, you know, part of the country who doesn't like him. And it's such a waste of energy. I love him because I want him whole and heal again so he doesn't have that problem, so his empathy can come back. And I don't do that by hating the man. You don't change anybody by hating them or judging them or making them wrong. You just don't help them in my the way I look at life. I just say 
because so many people who are friends of mine are ruining their life by getting <laughs> They go crazy by it. Families fight with each other, friends yell at each other at the restaurant. It's just like, it's got so, it's sadly amusing. I go, I, it's, that's what I, example, that's when you react to something instead of respond. I'm responding because I have ever, and I understand he has a mental illness and my anger isn't going to help him change. You know, we need to just select somebody else to the office, you know, but, but, but it's, it's like you're understanding whoever your friend is. Look, you know, I understand him because I go, he's a narcissist. It's just total, you know, it's everything he's doing. Look at all the list of qualities, go up, Google narcissism. You go, okay, he does that. And he does, I mean, they lose all their friends. I go, how many people, I told my friend the other day, I said, how many people in his original office are still working for him that he had in there? I said, not very many. They've all left. So it's just like understanding. You know, I told her she had to understand her friend. I said, your friend calls you because she doesn't have any friends. You know, she, she says, I got to buy two dogs. And they were like $500 each. I can't make my payment to you this month, which was like $120. You know, I just like... So now she's a totally different person, my friend. You know, she healed, I don't know, 10 different things in her life because she's not hating this lady every day. Yeah, I think we didn't mention the word ignorance, but it's basically it, like not knowing who you are. It's actually normal too, not to know, right? Like we have been talking, like at some point we didn't know either. At different levels, we are, we are not narcissistic. Maybe we were a little bit, maybe we are not at that point, but it's ignorance. We all know what that is. Well, when, when, when I grew up, my parents didn't know I was highly sensitive, neither did I. I'm sure I drove them crazy. Like, what is wrong with you? Why are you upset? I'm sure that they didn't know. It's just, you know, to me, everybody, the, the last thing I'll say is, to me, everybody's God. Everybody is a God in training. Everybody I meet is God in human, wearing a human thing. So wherever you go, there you are. I think that's the name of a book. Wherever you go, there you are. So every person I look at, no matter who they are, no matter the, if there's a shooting at a school, I bless everybody. I bless everybody, the people who died, the people who were left, the shooter. I bless everybody with unconditional love. I have a prayer every day where I bred us every particle of creation in this dimension and all dimensions because I don't want to miss anything. When I eat an apple, there are millions of things that had to happen for that apple to get to my hand. The the person who created the seed, the people who planted it, who grew the trees, the butterflies, the bees having orgasm with the pollen, the rain, the sun, you know, people picking it and transporting it. I mean, there's millions of things that had to happen for that apple to grow and me to eat it. And I don't want to miss anything. So I know there's people over the world who are helping me every day live the life I do with every product I have, with all the food I eat, and I don't want to miss anything. So I said everything unconditional every day. This kind of understanding, it's, um, it's what we, uh, we wish everyone would, would do quickly, but it doesn't happen that quick. So we have to be patient, which is part of love too, <laughs> being patient. Well, I think that you know, having compassion, Valeria, increases your ability to love because without contrast you wouldn't understand that you wouldn't understand how beautiful love is and how it can change your life without being exposed to hate and anger and resentment and stuff you would know you need the you need the contrast in order to experience anything we wouldn't know appreciate light without darkness 
Yeah, I agree. So I wanted to ask you a question about non-duality. This is something even difficult to talk about it because in order to talk about non-duality, you have to use dualistic kind of concepts. Like you just said, in order to know love, we need to know what hate is. I think that part of non-duality to me is being at peace with what is. Okay, so you're not on either side of the fence. You're just being at peace with whatever, if you're, if you're heavy, if your friend yelled at you, if whatever it is, you're, you're at peace with what is to a certain extent. But I think that, like, I have emotions. Like, I can't say that, you know, that I hear something, somebody tells me something. Like, let, let's say um, my friend told me that the, the children were separated from their parents, the migrant people. Okay, so I can't say that that doesn't anger me. And I think of the children and I think of the whole situation, but I am here to feel my emotions, but I, it doesn't stay with me. You know, I, I feel it and I'm angry and I say, well, you know, I send love. I, you know, I stop and I send unconditional love to all the people who are going through that experience, the parents and the children. You're strong and you're going to make it through this and it's going to be okay. And, you know, and everybody who's involved, you know, in this whole situation. And I don't carry those emotions or they taught me something, but I don't like hold on to them. Like you, if the, the thing is, it's, it's holding on to things that, that, that keeps us in the duality. Like, you know, if you eat some apple pie and you're sitting outside and you and I are talking, then you're going on, you were going inside and we're doing like all these other things. You're, you're not focused on that apple pie. It's gone. Like you're on to your next thing. But we have something, you know, that upsets us or irritates us. And it just like we're holding on to it. Like my friend, my teacher said, a golf, life is a golf game. You hit the ball, drag Harry. You've got this big thing he called Harry or your golf bag. And you put all your stuff in it and you're dragging it along. And it gets heavier and heavier and heavier in your life. And you can let it go. You don't have to, you know, it's not serving you. It's, you can just like let it go. Because whatever you need to remember in the moment is always there for you, if you trust it is. But, you know, I think the the exposure to all this stuff is to let us, you know, have a deeper appreciation of who we are. You know, um, I don't know, you know, Neil Donald Walsh? Yeah. He had this book, The Littlest Angel, whatever, something. And anyway, it was a children's book that he wrote. And um, this little... Angel was having a conversation with God and, you know, he wanted to know about himself. And um, he said, I want to know myself as the light I am, something like that. And he said, well, in order to do that, you'd have to experience darkness. And he said, well, you know, how do I do that? And he said, well, you don't have to incarnate, you know, and, and uh, but, you know, you, you, something will happen so that it'll have to you know, so you can have this experience, this experience of forgiveness. And so some angel comes out and says, I'll help you do that. You know, I can't remember the whole story, but, you know, he says, well, but he says, you know what? He says, I'll, and he has a chest of clothes there. He says, I have to dress up. It's something, be somebody else and I'll do something really mean to you so you can forgive me. And he says, oh, you'll do me? I can have that experience? He says, yeah. But he says, there's one thing you have to prepare, remember. And he says, what? Anything. I'll do anything. I want to have an experience like that. He says, you have to remember who you really, who we really are. Because if we don't remember who we are, then we'll have to go along until somebody reminds us who we really are again. You know, and it, I have ma mailed that child's book. It's a picture book to adults to um, remind them of that. 
you know, it's a simple story, but we're all here angels. We're all one. We're all lights. And we come here to have an experience and not to learn lessons to have to, you know, Abraham Hicks says, you know, we're joy seeking a way to express itself, but we've got lost with religious and all this other kind of focus on negativity all the time. We forgot that we came here to have fun, to love each other, to do things that enhance each other's life, to joy. I remember being a child and somebody telling me, wipe that smile off your face. What are you smiling about? I mean, that's really sad. <laughs> but you think about it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was one of those angels right, that came to, to teach you that lesson. Like, okay, first I will show you the wrong way of living and then remind you <laughs> who you are. Right. So, you know, that's, I think that we're all here helping each other evolve and we're going to, you know, if you read, you know, the Good News Network, there's a lot of wonderful, amazing, incredible things environmentally between people just all sorts of stuff that's healing the planet that people are totally unaware of unless they go. I mean, there's now hundreds and hundreds of stories they can go through. You know, they have animal heroes, people heroes. I just push all, you know, <laughs> I just want to, I want to read all the stories about everything. But there's a lot of good stuff that people are evolving, you know, but it's, I don't focus on the, I see that because I'm not focused on the negative. I don't, watch any news. I don't listen to news in the car. I changed all my songs, all my playlists. I only have happy, inspiring songs. There's, there's no sad songs, no angry songs. None of that stuff is because I think I'm affected by everything. So, And we are. This is might be another concern of mine. A lot of times I see people around me, my family members, and even myself trying to attach or to search for feel-good situations, always trying to push away, you know, what we call negative and always trying to be under the light instead of, um, you know, being in silent or in the dark at moments. Well, can you, can you give me an example of what you're talking about? I'm not quite grasping. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of this pursuit of happiness so a lot of times we are doing this, we're pushing away what doesn't feel right, doesn't feel good in order to attract, to pursue things that makes us feel good. The subject we have been talking about, changing the world, changing people around us. So we feel better. So we are more comfortable in this body, in this world, in this place, that reality that we're in. And I think this is might be one of the issues, like in really getting to the point of the deeper understanding of life, that this is the experience. And the experience has everything. Everything. It just doesn't really exclude anything. I feel like it's just being in between, experiencing life at its fullest. Everything without discrimination, without fear. And that is the highest understanding of what life is and the purpose is and to embrace it all. Well, you know, we, we both, you know, can be saying it using different words. You know, I learned being peace with it being at peace with what is, you know, was part of unconditional love. To me, since I'm unconditionally loving, there's no condition that's going to anger me or upset me or, you know, so I'm in that place of being at peace with what is. You know, the last, the one of the last judgments I let go of was my judgment about my body and feeling guilty about even eating lettuce. You know, I didn't realize it was an unconscious thing that 
that I've been on so many diets and everything else, but you know, you, you can be at peace with it. I don't know. Maybe you can be at peace with what it is without being unconditionally loving. I don't know. I don't like when I fell on the floor, for example, I heard that notice. And the thing is the little stools next to my feet. And I didn't remember that it had this little um, stuff on the bottom that it won't move, you know, to, to be safe. So I sort of thought I could push it out of the way when I turned to go to the refrigerator, but I couldn't. It didn't move and I fell over it. When I landed on the floor hard, and I weigh a lot, I was holding three glass jars in my arms, big canning jars. And I hit the ground and they went shooting across the one was between my chest, which bruised my chest, and the other two shot. And I looked around and my first comment was, Thank you, God, that none of them broke. That was my first comment. And I and I felt my ankle and I looked at it and it was already dark blue. And I said, well, I better get healing my ankle. And I got up and I went and I sat and I started, you know, doing my own healing work on my ankle. I never once said, why was I so stupid? Why did I do this? God, why didn't I listen to... I just didn't even go there because I de- I'm not going to judge myself anymore. Look, I heard... How many times did your parents tell you something? And you go against it with, oh, my parents don't know what the hell they're talking about. You know? And, oh, yeah, they did, you know? <laughs> that was a good thing they told you. you no, know, you just like, you stop beating yourself up because that's why I say it's important to love yourself first. Because when you stop beating yourself up first and you keep loving yourself, you don't, you aren't reacting and beating somebody else up because you're loving yourself first. You go, oh, well, I've done that. Well, I've done something similar. Well, I can sort of empathize with them. You know, there's between empathize and compassion. I emphasize too much because like I would take it all on. It's a super sensitive person. You know, compassion is understanding somebody, but empathy is like the Native Americans walking in somebody else's shoes. Somebody who's suicidal. I totally get that. I've been there. I mean, can understand it. So it's the the more you love yourself without conditions, the more you empathize with other people. So I'm at a point, it's taken me a long time, but you know, when I fell over, I didn't beat myself up. I said, thank you, no broken glass. Wow, that would have been a horrible mess with three huge jars full of stuff. And I would have been laying on broken glass. You know, that's where I went. I just like, what am I grateful for in this moment? That's what I like, you know, you know, what can I celebrate right now? What can I celebrate? What if, what was like, you know, DeWitt Jones, the habit of celebration, National Geographic sent him out. He thought it was going to be so hard to work for them for years. And they said, no, we want you to go out and find out what you can celebrate today. Mm, wow. You know, so I tried, I have this jar and I try every day on a little, you know, post-it note. I fold over the top. I write down the date and what I can celebrate today, what I'm happy about. And I put it in this jar. And at the end of the year, on December 23rd, I pour them all out on the desk and I read through all those little notes so I can remember all these things I celebrated during the year that I forgot about. Wow. That's just incredibly wonderful to hear this from another human being. Thank you so much, Morgan, for being there. Yeah, you say, you know, so just know when you when you're celebrating, you can go, I have hot water in my house. I have electricity. I have food to eat. The sun came up today. I've got clothes to wear. You know, there's so many things that you can celebrate even when you don't think you can celebrate there because there's a lot of people that don't have those things. I don't have I don't have any cell phone service where I live. My internet speed the other night was 0. 0.47. <laughs> 
You could just be happy for fast internet. <laughs> I celebrate. I have fast internet. Oh my God. You know? That's cute. I have just a few questions to ask you. Whatever comes to mind, what is your greatest joy? My greatest joy is my connection to my source, to all of life, to the feeling I get, you know, when I'm in meditation or I'm sitting out in nature or I'm sitting by the ocean, my connection to what I consider all that is, all of life. I feel so much more alive and I feel loved and cherished and adored and I feel connected to everything in the universe as I know it. What is another word for healing? Love. Love, yeah. How do you define success? I don't like to use the term anymore like success and failure. Um, I would just say you had something that you really wanted to do and you achieved doing it. Mm, whatever that, whatever it is, right? You know, like, whatever that is, whether you wanted to learn how to ski or you wanted to master your computer or you just wanted to finish reading a book and you've been, you had this big, thick book and you just got, I did it, I did it. You know, it took me a year, but I finished that. That's a success. And I think it's a personal thing. To me, it's more personal than having somebody else judge you by what they consider, whether you're a success or not. Like, you know, to me, earning a certain amount of money or, you know, being able to give a talk in front of people, whatever, you know, those are arbitrary things that somebody else can't judge you as to whether you're a success or not. We do, but I think that that's not a good way to measure success. I think it's a personal thing. Right. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? That I wasn't accepting myself as I was. You know, I wasn't accepting myself, my weight and, and that kind of stuff and my sensitivity and all that. I wasn't loving myself as I was. What is to be strong? I don't know, because I I try to, that's a dualistic thinking, they're strong and weak. So again, it's it's a personal thing, like a willow tree is strong because it bends in the wind, you know, whereas you could say an oak tree is one of the strongest woods. Like, what does it mean to be strong? Um, I don't think I can answer that because I then I'd have to say, what does it mean to be weak? And just in the moment, it doesn't, um, I think... Um, you know, somebody else would look at me and say, I'm strong because I can love without conditions. I cannot be angry at somebody and I'm just at peace with where they are in the moment. And a lot of people would say that that's strong, you know, from the outside. I'm just not sure in the moment how to answer that. Yes. Are you afraid to die, to lose the body? Mm, no, absolutely not. Like I've, I've talked to animals for over 20 years, been an animal communicator and communicated to nature and animals aren't afraid to die. They just, they just know they go into spirit and come back as another animal again. So I, and you know, I've, you know, communicated enough with, with just with my own relations and friends who passed on and read near death experiences that I have absolutely no fear of death whatsoever. So if you knew you would um, you would die soon, would you change anything about yourself or the way you live? Yeah. So I'd probably take what money I've left in the bank and do a few things, you know, that I haven't done. You know, I mean, if I, if, if I knew for sure, you know, I was going to die in a month, I would probably take, you know, my money out and, and see some things I've wanted to see and do some things because 
I wouldn't need the money to, <laughs> to pay bills, you know, six months from now. So I, you know, I'd have more experiences and go visit a few places I've wanted to visit. I've always wanted to swim with humpback whales. Um, so as I have a, a, for some reason, when I see them, you know, on the screen and everything, I always cry. So I seem to have a, some kind of really deep connection with them, for example, you know. Hmm. Um, what kind of existence do you believe after we lose the body? Well, I think we, we go into spirit and we don't remember anything negative. We only remember, um, you know, the most beautiful experiences of our lives. And we, you know, I don't know everything that goes on, but we have experiences with, with other people and other beings, uh, you know, who are in spirit and decide, you know, what we want to do next, what our next experience is. Because when we're in spirit and we're like, you know, 100% joy, love, we're like, we're ready for the next Indiana Joan adventure. You know, well, I'm going to be born without arms and legs this time. Watch me. Really? Are you crazy? No, I want to, I want to see what it's, you know, that we, we have this insatiable desire to experience new things. And we, we, we have this optimism that Seth describes by Jane Roberts, that we always know that eventually everything's going to turn out okay. I'm going to die and come again, and it's okay. It doesn't matter. And we have this inner guidance and that, you know, we're very optimistic when we come here. And like the animals are all optimistic. They don't, like a cat catches the mouse, the soul leaves. The mouse is just, you know, the cat's playing with the, you know, the body without its all its other it doesn't the animal that's being eaten does not experience pain but we look at it from our human experience and we judge so many things the like we have all these things in our way because we won't just like Seth used to say you'd experience you'd learn more about nature if you just watched it rather than dissecting it and killing it and trying to figure it out it says for instance a spider he says a spider loves building webs. It's creative. It's so much fun. It never gets mad when somebody, you know, a deer walks through it. It says, but you, your scientists assume the only reason a spider builds a web is because it catches bugs. It's totally surprised it catches bugs. Wow, I caught a bug. How exciting. Yum, 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 yum. Like it's a it does it for the, but you can't believe that animals in nature do anything for the sheer joy of the experience. So, you know, talking to animals is just like, and nature is like a soul, different things because they're so in love with life and dying is not something they fear. They don't even, like I, I was an animal communicator. I had all these clients that come to me. The other animal communicator was trying to tell them to tell their animal not to go on the road and show them run over by a car. Well, the animal goes, okay, I just go into a new life. You know, I had to teach him to see the animal going to the sidewalk, turning around and coming to the house to show them how to stay in their yard rather than try to make them scared of dying because they're not afraid of dying. You know, they're so alive all the time. You don't, you know, you, you watch these mothers push these baby birds out of this nest thousands of feet up, you know, and the bird flies because it just, there's this optimism that everything's like monarch butterfly. They go where they've never been before. Millions of they've never been to this place they're flying to before. And yet they make it. And they even if some of them drop down, the same thing with bird migrations. They're like optimistic. And we have lost the nature is such a mirror for us of what life was meant to be. We've lost this childlike optimism. If you look at Jesus, you know, all these people, what did they say? Be like little children. Be like little children. They tell us that 
time because little children don't judge you. They don't care what color you are. They don't care if you're wealthy or poor. They just love you. My son was like three years old and I had got my first haircut and the lady was flash chested. And Andy goes to me, he's sitting on a chair, you know, next to me while I'm having my hair. He goes, mommy, how come she doesn't have any of those? Pointing to my Everybody laughed. I mean, they're just like so. It wasn't judgmental. It was just a innocent little question. And I come to get my haircut. Observation. The lady just loved it. She goes, See, I believe you doesn't have any of those. <laughs> <laughs> right, without any judgment, right? Just uh, that's beautiful. And they're just like, and that's what we were meant to grow up and be that way our whole life. We're parents tried, they think they're doing good and and helping us by telling us what to be afraid of and what to trust and what not to trust and who to love and who not to love. And it, you know, it conditions us. We get conditioned. What are three things about life you know for sure? That I believe that unconditional love is the foundation from which everything emerged, you know, that everything was created, that I'm always connected to my source, you know, or God or all that is by, um, because I'm, you know, mostly spirit incarnated in a physical body and that I'm connected to all of life. Before you read the poem, where can the audience find information about you, your work, writings, products, services, projects? Well, my, my, um, my website with my writing is my name, morgenejordan.com, M-O-R-G-I-N-E. J-U-R-D-A-N. And then my animal communication website is communications, that's with an S, communicationswithlove.com and peacefulpetpassing.com. That's for helping animals with end of life. And if anybody has a lost animal, I have a findalostpetresources.com that I put all the resources in case people have lost animals so they could find many resources in one place if they've got a missing animal. Wonderful. It has been a meaningful conversation. Fun. A lot of fun, too. I call it spiritual fun. That was fun. Me, too. The poem, thinking. Okay. It's called, uh, I am the magic and the birds singing. I am the magic and the birds singing. I am the colors and the rainbow. I color the sky with my radiance. I fill the forest with my loam. I am the mountains meeting the sky all day long. For one drop of water, for one grain of sand, in one cell of my body, the world is made whole again. As I breathe, I take in life and I let it go. My hair, my skin, my breath fall upon the earth, composting into soil, eaten by worms and bugs, eaten by animals and birds living in trees, fertilizing the tree with their excrement. And the tree growing fruit I eat, eating myself again and again, becoming whole and being it all. I'm the beginning. I'm the end without an end. The deepest feeling anyone has, the deepest love, the deepest pain, the deepest longing, the peace beyond transcendence, bliss, anguish, terror, fear, love, they're all me, they're all mine, all divine, all that I am. There's no richness I cannot have, there's no pain I cannot feel, there's no lines, no divisions, no time, no separation. I come from a place that remembers it all and into which all life flows because love is all there is. And in the moment of the true reflection, I fall down and weep in the arms of myself. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your presence. 
Thank you for asking me. Thank you so much again. Bye for now. Have a beautiful day. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Morgine Jordan, please visit her website, morgenejordan.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Bye.